Father in heaven, I, I want to publicly acknowledge now that I need you, and that it is your spirit that must speak this morning. And we pray for that and ask in Jesus' name, amen. In 1955, probably uh, one of the, it was the beginning of one of the largest nonviolent protests in the history of the United States. There was a lady by the name of Rosa. She was sitting on a bus, and she was told that she was supposed to move because she was the wrong color, and a white man wanted to sit there. She refused, was arrested, and that was the beginning of 13 months of protest and a boycott of the bus system in Montgomery, Alabama. A few years later, six, seven years later, a minister who started to come to prominence during the Montgomery boycott was a man by the name of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He staged another protest, and this time it was in Birmingham, Alabama. Birmingham was known for its segregation. You had the bathroom for the black. You had the bathroom for the white. You had the water fountain for the black, the water fountain for the white, and that's how they did it. Very, very segregated city, and the idea of Dr. King is we want to change this atmosphere, and we can do it with a nonviolent protest. The mindset was this. Uh, I think here's how he described it. Um, the nonviolent protest was the principles of Christianity combined with the methodology of Gandhi. We are going to... Um, the protest in Birmingham didn't go as well as he was planning. He got put in jail. Um, a lot of the adults were a little bit nervous to get involved with the protest because you get arrested, you're in jail, then you don't make money, right? Then how do you provide for the needs of your home if you don't have money? And somehow or another, it's, it's debated a little bit how it began, but we had children in Birmingham who decided they were going to march instead. And here's just a few pictures from that time period. Even though most of the protesters remained pacifist, there were violent measures that were used to stop them. That photo right there is probably one of the most famous of that time, including hoses that were set at such a level that they would strip bark off of trees. Fire hoses. Uh, dogs were used. Um, when this photo uh, you see here on the left on the bottom, when this came out, the outrage, the public outrage in the United States reached new heights. In fact, the president of that time, John F. Kennedy, said this. It was the events in Birmingham, and he also he was talking about the Selma March, a march, have so increased the cries for equality that no city or state or legislative body can prudently choose to ignore them. Change people, change a culture through nonviolent protest. But it's more than just that. Here's how Martin Luther said it. The nonviolent resistor not only refuses to shoot his opponent, but he also refuses, please say it with me, to what? This is the Christian principle. Not am I going to only sit in and be nonviolent. I'm going to choose to not let my mind be controlled by you. And I'm going to love instead of hate. One of his famous statements in his book, Where Do We Go From Here, was this. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. 
king's statement here is clearly based on the teachings of Jesus Christ without a question. How important and powerful is this love that Jesus so actively promoted in the Sermon on the Mount? Very powerful. Powerful enough that it can change forces that violence could never do. For three weeks, uh, three weeks ago, I challenged you, and some of you told me it was a challenge, and some of you, I knew, rebuked me. I knew it was going to come sooner or later, and that happens. And I probably deserve some of it, but I'm going to repeat it again just because I believe that these are controversial statements because it's not like us. Six times in this chapter, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, they say, but I say. Six times he says, but I say. And we looked at some of them the last time. Um, Forgiveness, meekness, purity, protection, truth. They say this, but I say this. He takes the, the thinking that we have that's on the surface level and he goes, we need to go deeper. Christianity is not an action. Christianity is who you are. Christianity is not something you do. Christianity is an indwelling Savior. And that's what God's talking about here. Um, All of this, though, I have to emphasize, is in the context of the Beatitudes. If there was no Beatitudes, this kind of righteousness is impossible. With the Beatitudes, it's a joy. Here's why. Because in the Beatitudes, there is one Beatitude that we spent a little bit of extra time on. It was, blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be what? When you hunger and thirst after righteousness, we call it a holy craving. When you long for God so bad that he's got to fill you, he does fill you. And when he fills you, everything else comes in his train. It's Christ in you is the only way this exceeding righteousness that's being described here in Matthew 5 could ever happen. But we covered how many of those, but I say unto you, five, but there is six. We're going to look at the sixth one today. I'm going to spend a whole time looking at it. And that is our final, but I say unto you. You ready? Here it is. Love your enemies. Do you mind turning with me in Matthew chapter 5? And we're going to go to this passage, Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be reading at the end, verse 43 and onward. Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 43 and going on. Jesus had said some pretty radical stuff up to this point. Uh, The things that, words that he was saying are are not in accordance with what is being taught by the Pharisees of his time. Um, and this one is probably his, the, the summation, if I were to use that word, of what he's been teaching up to this point. You have heard that it has been said, I'm in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, what? Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, and do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Before I go on, what were the four things that Jesus gave a command here? Love your enemies, so you're supposed to love. Bless those that curse you, so bless. Do good to those who hate you, so do good. And what's the last one? Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. So four things. Love, bless, do good, pray. Yes? 
Love, bless, do good, pray. That's what he's asking us to do. And who are we supposed to be doing it to? Uh, All right. There's a quotation that I just came across from A. Schlatler and his Dur Evangelist. When love no longer has to wait on the performance of others, an immense transformation has taken place. This is the end goal of the Beatitudes. This is the transformation that is phenomenal. When love doesn't wait on the performance of others. You know what that means? When you don't need someone else's actions to determine whether you love them or not. When you don't need their words to determine whether you love them or not. You simply love because they are and he is in you. That is when you've reached Christianity. Very simple. We'll prove that throughout today. But I just wanted to state it from the very beginning. Here's where we're going, and then we'll show you how we get there. Okay, Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at this first one. Um, oh, before I go to this, I'd like to go back. Um, where's the biblical definition of love? If you were to choose a biblical definition of love, help me out. Where would you go? First Corinthians, that's right. I, I agree with First John, we'll be going there a bit later. But First Corinthians chapter 13. So if we could turn there together, First Corinthians 13, we're looking at a biblical definition of what love is. Now we read this at weddings all the time, because in our culture, love is something that's only in marriages and it's nowhere else. I'm laughing as I say that, because sometimes we get it backwards. We should have love everywhere. Okay, love, First uh, Corinthians chapter 13. And verse 4. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4. It's a beautiful chapter. We could read it all later, but for sake of time. Love suffers long and is kind. Love suffers long and is kind. That's love. So when I'm supposed to love my enemy, I'm supposed to be patient with them, suffer long, now, suffer long and patient, uh, the word suffer long just kind of more dramatic, isn't it? Say, yeah, you need to be patient. Okay. You need to suffer long. Ooh, what does that mean? I'm supposed to suffer? Mm-hmm. How long? Long. Oh, <laughs> suffer long. Um, love suffers long. So let's say your friend really gets under your skin. What does love do? What if they're under your skin for a couple weeks? What does love do? What if it's a couple years? It suffers long. Love suffers long. And what is the next word? And is kind. How about this one? I'm just, I'm just picking them because um, love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely. <laughs> I'm going to stop on that a little bit. Uh, do you know any rude people? Now, I'm assuming you are not the person you're thinking about, right? Because when we think of rude people, it's always somebody else. Um, there are times when I'm rude when I'm driving, and I never think that I'm rude when I'm driving. I'm thinking that I'm in a hurry and I have to get there, right? But anyone else in the road would say, man, that guy is rude. Love does not behave rudely. And we got to look at ourselves, I think, in this one. Instead of looking at the rude people that are around you or that you're thinking about in your mind, what about you? Are there times when you're not 
when you are rude to someone that, well, anybody. Because this is kind of, this, is this talking only about certain people? It's kind of a broad statement here. Love does not behave rudely. Uh, there is one more, and then we'll not spend too much time on it, but it is found in verse, same verse, does not behave its rudely, seeks not its own, is not easily provoked, and that last one thinks no evil. I was with a evangelistic series that was taking place in Hawaii, and I'm always willing to sacrifice for evangelism. So I was spending six months in Hawaii sacrificing in evangelism. I was not the evangelist, so I had no pressure at all. I was just hanging out with a friend of mine who was the evangelist, and I was the singing evangelist. And he started liking the girl who was leading the children's division and asked her to do the singing, so I actually had no job, and I was just hanging out in Hawaii for a couple weeks. But in that process, there was a person who was making the life of the evangelism team miserable. I know it's hard to believe that a Christian could do that, but it was. They were just agitating and and just picking on people. And I was the senior member of the evangelism team. It tells you we were quite a young group. And so I was doing a worship thought one morning, and I pulled out 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. And I said, love thinks no evil. In my research on thinks no evil, I realized, I used to think thinks no evil means doesn't think bad thoughts. Let's hold on to it. That's not a bad thing. But thinks no evil also means I'm not thinking evil of what you're thinking. In other words, I don't judge. Oh, you know, I, I, I know what Gerard's thinking right now as he's sitting there. That's thinking evil. If I'm thinking evil thoughts, that what he's thinking is evil. You got it. Am I confusing you? I hope not. Is it possible for us to do that? Is it possible for us to think evil? I bet that what they're thinking right now is, Pastor Chuck's applying this to me. No! How do you know that? Maybe you're thinking evil. No. Maybe I'm... See, you got the problem with it, right? This is what God is speaking about to us here. Don't think evil. And when I was preparing this for my friend, God said, Chuck, what are you doing? It was me who was thinking evil. Do you realize that? I was thinking evil of him because I thought he was thinking evil. I have found that it's very hard for this love thing to really work without a miracle. Because by nature, we humans, we do a little bit of evil thinking. Okay, so what's our next thing? Bless. Bless those that do what? I I like the car illustration, so I'll go back to the car illustration. I am not being rude. I'm simply in a hurry, and I cut someone off. Okay? But they think that I'm rude, and they share with me uh, verbally and with hand signals that they're not impressed with my action. I look at them, and I would say that they're cursing me. Would that be a fair way to say it? They're cursing me. What is my response? Is that a blessing? Is that blessing someone? It's practical, right? Can you imagine doing this? I'm so sorry. I remember I was traveling with a choir, and I was the driver of the last van in a four-car motorcade. We were traveling in Italy, 
I had no idea where I was going. I had no idea what the language is. And I know that if I lose the people in front of me, I'm done because the guy in the front really doesn't care whether I stay on or not. It just, that's what it felt like. So I remember driving through red light after red light in Italy, Milan, with people screaming at me, horns blowing. I'm thinking, I can't lose them. I can't lose them. And I remember there was a young man sitting in the back seat. He was one of the basses in the choir. And here's what I heard the whole time. I almost yelled at him to stop. The whole time I heard for about half an hour, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. He was saying his sorry to the people as I was driving through Milan. It's like, stop it. Bless those that curse you. Do you mind turning with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4? You're already in 1 Corinthians. Let's just go back a few chapters. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 12. And this is um, Paul speaking, sharing his testimony. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 12. Paul says something very special. He says, and we labor working with our own hands. Being reviled we bless being reviled we bless being persecuted it we endure being defamed we entreat we have been made as the filth of the world the off scouring of all things until now what a position we don't think of paul like this we think of paul the great paul the great apostle he wrote all these great theological things that sometimes we understand but he's saying here that I'm reviled, and when I'm reviled, I bless. Are you reviled by people at times? I know enough of the stories that take place in this room to know that many of you know what it means to be reviled. You know what it's like to people to speak under their breath about you. God is asking the impossible. He's asking us to bless. He's asking us to bless. The next one is, do good to them that hate you. Do good to them that hate you. Um, Proverbs chapter 25, maybe you remember this when you were uh, younger in in Sabbath school, Proverbs chapter 25. I I memorized it at that point. And we're going to be looking at verse 21 and 22. Again, the subject is doing good to those that hate you. If your enemy is hungry, give him a stone. Is that what it says? If your enemy is hungry, what do we do? Give him bread to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, when I first heard it, I thought, wait a minute, coals of fire? That doesn't sound really positive. Do you do good to those who hate you? Maybe people hate you. Does someone sense hate? You know, I, last week I was meeting with a group of Christians here in Hyannis. As I listened to some of the stories came out, I heard, yeah, this happened to me. This connects a little bit with a story we were just reading about with Birmingham. Okay. Some people, they see me walk in, they say, uh, who are you? Or I want to eat here, who are you? Or I want to have a job here, why are you in this position? Someone like you shouldn't be there. Is there hatred that's connected with that? Yes. 
Can you do good to those who hate you? Now, what I'm asking, please don't think that Chuck Holtry's mastered this. I want to be crystal clear. I'm up here as one of us talking about what God's speaking to us and knowing that God has called us to this. Does that make sense? Because this is, this is a high thing, but it's, it's not a hard thing, but it can be a hard thing if we don't understand the source. Um, Proverbs, uh, Romans chapter 12, and uh, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but there's a great verse, Romans 12, 21. We used to sing it as a choir warm-up song. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil. And then we do that the whole way through the scale to kind of loosen ourselves up. It was our Sabbath warm-up song. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Um, Remember that. He was uh, a former gang member from Malaysia a master in martial arts, and a friend of mine. Um, I accidentally scared him once, and uh, he almost took me out. He was trained so well that any time a noise happened, his body was in fighting gear. Well, after he had been converted, gave his life to God, and God did that miracle in his life that he does in our lives as Christians, right? He was walking down the street on a mission trip, and someone came up behind him, a petty thief, put a knife at him and said, we want what you've got. Now, the thing is, he could have killed them. They had no idea who they were picking on. And you know what he did? He looked at them, he smiled, and he started preaching to them. And you know what they did? They said, we've got the wrong person, and they laughed. (laughs) Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do good to those who hate you. Um, And our next one, pray. And what is this a picture of? Some of you may be familiar with this from your Bible stories. This is a picture of Stephen while he's being stoned, Acts chapter 7. And as he's being stoned there in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, who's done nothing wrong but preached the gospel, he's kneeling there. Stones are coming at him from either side. He's about to lose consciousness. And he says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Can you pray for those who persecute you? What a, what a level of living. Charles V, the um, Charlemagne, the great King Charles of the Holy Roman Empire in the Middle Ages, had more power in Netherlands than in some other countries. And as a result, anyone that did not agree with the state church of that time was persecuted and thousands lost their lives. During this time, a family was captured And a young boy was asked to explain what they were doing in their secret assemblies for worship. And here's what he said. It's quoted in the book, The Great Controversy. This boy said, We fall on our knees and pray that God may enlighten our minds and pardon our sins. We pray for our sovereign 
Who? Charles V, the persecutor, the one that's going to kill? Yes. We pray for our sovereign that his reign may be prosperous and his life happy. We pray for our magistrates that God may preserve them. This young man saw his father and brothers killed by these same people. Are you willing to pray for those who persecute you? Is there anyone on this planet that you're not willing to pray for? That they are prosperous and that their life is happy. I feel strongly about this because we as Christians have little loopholes. You know, there's tax loopholes, right? So IRS time, everyone's looking for a tax loophole. Well, Christians have their loopholes. Somehow I can love everybody except, and sometimes you know who we've refused to love? Those who are closest to us. There are families that are divided because of feuding. I can love my enemy, but I can't love a fellow person in my family. Have mercy. That is not the call that God has placed upon you and I. Loving your enemies is not easier than loving your family. If it is, then something's wrong. Or then just say, my family is my enemy and love them. This is what God is calling us. Okay, sorry. Got a little sidetracked. You ready? God wants us to love our enemies, and he wants us to put our love into action. How did Jesus say to love your enemies? He said it very simply. He said it here, but he also said in Matthew 22, verse 39. He listed all the law, and he said the two most important laws were what? To love your God with all your heart, soul, and might, and to love your Neighbor, as you're saying, so neighbor and enemy are different. Yes, it, it sounds like that. Well, as a result, the scribe, there was a scribe who was there, and he said, so master, who is my neighbor? You remember that story? Who is my neighbor? And what do you say? Let me tell you a story. There is a man. He was traveling from Jericho, Jerusalem down to Jericho. We're talking about a 3,000-foot dro- drop in about 18 miles, rocky desert area. He's walking through the area. There's lots of robbers there, and he gets robbed. He gets killed, not killed, but he's left for dead. And this man is laying beside the side of the road, and then comes a Levite. Now, Levites had a special job. What was the Levite's job? They worked in the... In the sanctuary, the temple, right? So he would walk and he saw the, he saw the man there, but he knew that if I touch him, I'm going to be unclean. And so he kind of walked this way. I don't want to get stopped. He kind of whistling, continued on his direction, and just left the Levite there. And then, and then a, who came next? Priest or Pharisee. Actually, I think it was a Pharisee. A Pharisee comes by, a priest, and he's walking. What does he see? He sees him. Now this time he looks at him and his heart is burning with compassion. I need to do something. But you know what? If I do something, I'm going to get caught up in it. Isn't that the way it is in life? When you help somebody, you get caught up in their problems. I don't know if I have time to be caught up in this guy's problems. Oh God, please forgive me. I don't even know if he said that, but he said, let me get past here, right? And he got as fast as he could away from that man that was there. And then the Bible tells us who came. A Samaritan. Now, it's interesting about a Samaritan. As a Samaritan, if a Samaritan had been laying on the ground and a Jew came by, the Jew would spit on him and keep walking. Maybe a kick on the way. 
Jews hated Samaritans. So here's a Samaritan seeing this Jew laying on the ground, and he's looking at what happens. Does he think what I should do? No. Simply, he stops. He kneels down. He picks him up. He treats his wounds, puts him on his own donkey, takes him to an inn. When he gets to the inn, he takes care of him for the night. Then when he's done, he gives money for two more nights stay to the owner. And he says, whatever more is owed, I'll pay it when I come back. Then Jesus asked after telling this story, by the way, it was a real story. This wasn't just the parable it had actually taken place. After he was done, Jesus said to the scribe would ask, who was my neighbor? He said, so which one of those was a neighbor to the man who was beaten? And even then, that scribe couldn't say Samaritan. He couldn't say it because Samaritan just tastes funny coming out of his mouth. He said, the one who did him good. And he said, yes, you're right. Who is a neighbor? According to Jesus, a neighbor is not someone that you love. It could be. A neighbor is whoever needs the help that you can give. Could an enemy need you? Yeah, it's possible. God's love. So we're looking back at our text. The first thing that we saw as we went through in Matthew chapter 5, we saw love your enemies, bless those that curse you, do good to those that hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. And then it says in verse 45 that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. He said, I'm asking you to do good and love, and here's how you can be loving. Your heavenly Father is loving, and he sends sunshine and rain. It doesn't make a difference whether you are righteous or unrighteous. It doesn't make a difference whether you're good or bad. You get the same weather. Have you noticed that when we have a snowstorm here on the Cape that the snow falls on everybody? Yes? Sometimes not. Well, more things may fall than just snow, Christina. But, but the snow is here. If it's on the Cape, it's on the Cape. When it rains on the Cape, does everyone get rain? When you have sunshine on the Cape, does everyone get sunshine? It does. It's true. Yeah, that's right. We have a fallen tree right out the window there. Thank you, Steve. Not for knocking it down. Help, help cleaning it up. It happens regardless of. See, God gives, allows, whether you are good or bad. Sunshine comes whether you're righteous or unrighteous. Can't we be the same way? Can't we love whether they deserve it or not? Can't we love whether people are righteous or not? Whether they fit our group or not? How else does God show his love? Romans chapter 5, verse 8. For God commended his love towards us, that while we were yet sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. Another way we see the love of God being expressed is the fact that regardless of whether we are sinner or not, all of us are sinners, He died for us. He didn't say, okay, those who kind of are nice, I'll die for them. No, God died for us while we were sinners. There's a 
A verse you all know well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but everlasting life. He was a drug runner. Spoiled kid. Favorite child of his mom. And he grew up getting whatever he wanted. And he discerned it took that into his life as an adult. Got married, expected whatever he wanted. Then became a drug runner. 95 was his drug route. And he took it from North Carolina and on up and around these parts. Hopefully, he didn't affect Cape Cod too much. But he was a drug runner. But God got a hold of him. God took him miraculously saved his life. And he started realizing God has a plan for me. And he changed it for God. So loved the world. She part of the Mexican mafia. Did you know they exist? You're in California. You would know about it. She lives in California. She became hard gangster. I remember seeing pictures of her after I first, when I first met her, she did not, look like what she would describe but she showed me pictures the 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 big boots the army style boots and the the hair that was cut in a crew cut and just ready to take on anyone angry but god got a hold of her and i remember her sitting in class as one of our students and there was there was this this child that came in that that was struggling with some kind of uh learning disability and the child was running all around the class and everyone just looked and said what's going on what's going on not her she got up and she sat down on the ground with a sore back laid down on the ground actually because she couldn't sit up next to this child and played with them and read stories and did something so that the mother could actually teach for god so loved the world he was a hitman. He worked at another gang. Drove his Harley around. Tough guy. Not that Harleys are gangster things. I want to clarify. Sorry, anyone. But he, he, he was, his job was to, if you're not paying up, my job is to get it from you. And he always got his money. Tough man. In the jail, he became the king. Do you realize that there's gangs in jail? And became the head of a gang in jail. Well, God got a hold of him. Because God so loved the world. He's now a personal ministry director for a conference. Won't tell you which one right now. And then there's another one. I don't know why, but she felt like she had an X on her back. She was abused over and over and over. It just seemed like life was never anywhere but down. And somehow God reached into the midst of her life and God got a hold of her. Saved her from this position that she was in. And now she's one of the key leaders for the main prayer ministry that takes place in the general conference. Why? Because God so loved the world. This is God's kind of love. He doesn't care if you're a drug runner or you're a hit man. He doesn't care if your life has been one of abuse. He doesn't care if you've been involved with cruelly mistreating other people. He loves you because that's God. God doesn't give out his love partially. It comes to all people. So today I want you to know if you're questioning the love of other people, you may, but don't question the love of God. He 
loves you. The scary part is, in Matthew chapter 5, he's asking us to love that way too. You know, I found this interesting, and why this, is, uh, this means a lot to me is I, I've been in circumstances in my life where I hear a lot of debate about perfection. And um, I get nervous when anyone starts debating perfection. Um, some people say, you can sin and live and do whatever you want. And biblically, that just doesn't make sense to me. And then I hear other people say, you have got to be perfect. And quite frankly, that doesn't make sense to me either. Because both of them are right, but both of them are very wrong. It's all how you twist it. Does that make sense? Jesus, after describing this incredible love, says this, Be ye therefore perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. That command is in the context of loving your enemies. Amazing. Amazing picture. Okay, you ready? Let's take a little bit of time in 1 John, and then we will close up. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. I've heard someone say recently that when they hear 1 John, they get stressed. I'm sorry if you're getting stressed right now. Beautiful. 1 John chapter 4. Uh, beautiful section here. It says something here. It was our, our scripture reading for today. 1 John 4, starting with verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. Why? For God is what? God is love. If you were to put a definition, God equals, it would be God equals love, because God is love. Beautiful picture we see here. And then you see in verse 12. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, what happens? God abides in us, and his love has been perfected in us. Oh, wait a minute. You can't see God, but if you want to see God, here's how you see God. He dwells in those who loves, so therefore I can see God in somebody else who's loving. That's the picture. Oh, you know what that means? This is how our children see God. Yes? By us. Now, before you condemn yourself right now, right now I'm condemning myself, okay? Praise God that he takes our mistakes. He forgives them, and we move on. But let's move on lovingly, amen? This is how your friends see God. This is how your enemies know who God is, by seeing his love in us. Beautiful, beautiful. First John 4, 17. Verse 17. We're just staying in the same chapter here. 4, 17. It says this. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as, what? He is, so are we in this world. Oh, you know how love is perfected in us? When you and I are the same that God is. And you may be saying, Chuck, okay, well, that's impossible, and you're right, because human beings cannot be God. So why would God ask us this? It's because he desires to live in your heart. When God lives in you, then he is, and you are the same. 
When God lives in your heart, then he is and you are the same. When he's in me, it's his righteousness. It's his love that is seen in Chuck. That's it. That's how it happens. Notice this, starting with verse 12. God abides in us. Verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. Verse 15. Whosoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Verse 16. We have known and believed that love God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. The whole issue here is abiding. That means God lives in us. And we have his love in our hearts. If you were here last week for a phenomenal sermon, Chaplain Bob Mills was sharing about the idea of abiding. This ties right into it. This is it. This is what God's asking for us. No, this is what he is offering us. If you want to have a real life, this is the way to live it. You know, there's a quotation that I quote partially all the time. I want to quote in full today. Desire of Ages, page 641. Love to man is the earthward manifestation of the love of God. It was to implant this love, to make us children of one family, that the King of glory became one with us. What did he do? He became what? One with us. And when his parting words are fulfilled, love one another as I have loved you, When we love the world as he has loved it, then for us, his mission is accomplished. God has a mission for your life. Did you know that? He has a mission for my life. He has a mission for our lives. And this is his mission. When we love the world as he loved it, that's his mission. And then he says this, we are fitted for heaven. Why? For we have heaven in our hearts. Being fitted for heaven, at one point in my life, I thought it was a diet. Being fitted for heaven, at one point in my life, I thought it was how many commandments I could keep. You notice how I stated that. Being fitted for heaven, at one point I thought it was, maybe if I stopped fighting with my sister for the rest of my life. Didn't work. Being fitted for heaven. Maybe it's if I dress the right way. Being fitted for heaven. Maybe, and I had all these ideas of what it meant to be fitted for heaven. But this is what it means to be fitted for heaven. It's when he has his love in my heart. When I can look at my enemies. When I can look at the family members that get under my skin. When I can look at my spouse. When I can look at my children. When I can look at my, whoever it may be, and look at them and say, I love you. I want to pronounce a blessing on you. I want to do good to you. I want to pray for you. And some of you are looking at me and saying, Chuck, you're out of your mind. That's not possible. And you know what? In your strength, you're right. It's impossible. Because by nature, this, in my opinion, um, is what you and I are. Envy. 
proud for people. We're arrogant. We're evil thinking. We're self-seeking. We're rude. We're easily provoked. That's what we are without God. But with him, something happens. When he comes into our hearts and lives, he brings who he is into our hearts and lives. And all of a sudden, 1 Corinthians 13 becomes a reality because he is a reality in us. I want that. I pray for it, and I see God doing that in my life. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not perfect. I'm not where I want to be. But I praise God I'm not where I used to be. God can take radical teaching and make it real living. What we're learning about today is radical. Christianity isn't coming to church on the weekend. Please don't get me wrong. Christianity is not supporting financially. I think we should, but that's not it. Christianity is not doing a set dogma. True Christianity is Jesus Christ living in our hearts and our lives. That's Christianity. And when Christ lives in us, the, the animosities that we have between us fade away. When he lives in us, the self-seeking that always lifts me higher than someone else, it fades away. When Jesus Christ is living in me, my, my envy, my boastfulness, my doubt, my anger, my feelings of selflessness, what I mean is you're worth nothing, worthlessness, they go. Because when Jesus is in my heart, love reigns. I have a question for us this morning. Do you want him in your heart? Would you ask Jesus to come into your heart? Now, some of you say, well, he's already there. Well, praise God. If he's already in your heart, and you want to ask him anyhow, would you raise your hand? And if he's not in your heart and you want to ask him anyhow, would you raise your hand? I want Jesus in me. Why? Because I don't like living with Chuck. Quite frankly, my wife doesn't either when I'm Chuck. Okay? But I want to have Christ in my home. I want to have Christ in my work. I want to have Christ in my friendships. I want to have Christ in my ministry. And that can only happen when I have Christ in me. That's the kind of experience I want. And that's the kind of teaching, the radical teaching that Jesus has been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. It's radical. But with him, it becomes reality. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your son. We want to know what it means to be united with him. We ask that you will stay in our hearts or come into our hearts. We pray for this in Jesus' name, amen. Our closing song.
is number 492, like Jesus. And as you sing it, we remind it again, to be like him, there's only one way, and that's to have him.